Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, as you see on the screen. We've been going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Mark, as he wrote down the stories that Peter recounted over and over again, as Peter was ministering to the church in Rome, telling them about his time with the Lord Jesus Christ, and giving us this eyewitness account of the power and majesty of Jesus, our Savior. This morning, as we look into verses 14 through 29 in the Gospel according to Mark, we have another miracle in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that also at the same time records for us another failure of the disciples. This has been recurring themes throughout the Gospel to this point, that Jesus Christ is unique, that even though his disciples are believers, even though they recognize him as God's Christ, that they are very prone to failure and that their faith is very small, their understanding is inadequate, and that they have a lot of growing to do. And that's going to be the focus on discipleship here in these coming chapters in Mark's Gospel, that they're good for us who are also weak and prone to fail and small in faith. So this is another segment in the Gospel of Mark on the importance of faith. We are saved by faith, we grow in our salvation by faith, we reach the end by faith. All of the work of God is done by faith, and this passage that we look at today will drive that point home once again. So I want to go ahead and read our section in full at the beginning of our sermon here. So follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to start in verse 14 and read down through verse 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind 
cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. A fascinating account on multiple levels. And so that's why we're really going to have a a two-pronged approach to this passage this morning. Normally I like to have one big idea that covers it all, but in light of the time and place we live in and some of the questions this passage raises for us, we're going to look at two main ideas this morning. The first one is the main idea of the passage itself, that this passage is here to teach us the importance of faith in participating in the work of Christ in the world. Faith is a huge theme throughout this whole passage, and that seems to be why it is included by all three of the gospel writers right after the transfiguration account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the transfiguration, like Mark has here at the beginning of the chapter, and all three of the synoptic writers include this miracle of the healing of this boy with the unclean spirit immediately afterwards. But secondly... This passage raises questions for us in the time and the culture that we live in. For we live in a world that is largely atheistic and secular. A world that doesn't really believe in the existence of angels and demons. And understands all ailments that happen to human beings as having purely physical causes. And so this passage gives us a unique opportunity out of the many passages that we could look at on a similar vein... But this one, most of all, puts the highlight on the relationship between the spiritual world and physical maladies. And so we're going to be talking about how to understand the spiritual and the physical and the nature of the world that we live in in light of this historical eyewitness account of Jesus' miracle. Before we dive into it, let's have a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, We stop here at the beginning of the sermon because we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And it's good for us to express to you that we depend upon you and the grace that you provide to us through your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Father, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, whom you have poured out richly upon us, would dwell richly in our hearts now in this hour, even as he has been with us during the time of worship, and that he would guide us into all the truth. May he guide my words and my heart, and may he open up the ears in the eyes of each one of us to be able to see and understand the nature of reality and to be able to have faith in you. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Now, Mark's account of this miracle is more than twice as long of Matthew or Luke's. And so Mark gives us a lot more detail here, and it really makes it a very lively eyewitness account. And it starts off from the perspective of the disciples coming down the mountain with Jesus. That's where we left off last week in chapter 9, where they had the mountaintop experience. They were there, they saw Jesus Christ transfigured, The veil was removed and they saw the glory of the only Son of God as his clothing became radiant and his face was shining like the sun. And as they were up there on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah, they're coming down from that mountaintop experience of glory back to the the real world, so to speak, the fallen world, maybe that's a better way of describing it, the fallen world of mankind, where you've got the disciples arguing with the scribes because there's this situation that has arose in Jesus' absence. Down from the mountaintop glory of God back to the world of squabbling men of small faith. 
That's one way to think of this. And that's why it says, when they came to the disciples. So Peter, James, and John were the three that had been with Jesus on the mountain. Peter is the one who is recounting this story. Mark records it from his perspective. As we came back to the disciples, we saw that a great crowd was around them, and the scribes were arguing with the disciples. And what were they arguing about? Well, it appears that the scribes were aware that the disciples had failed to cast out the demon and perform this healing. And that the scribes were using this as an opportunity to discredit the movement that had formed around Jesus. They were saying, look, you know, the the disciples of Jesus, they can't do anything miraculous. They don't have any power. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. And so this had caused a disturbance. And the people in the crowd had known that Jesus had given the disciples authority to cast out demons and to perform healings and that they had already gone and done that. And and now they're failing in this case. And it, it gives the scribes an opportunity to take issue with Jesus and his followers. That's the situation that greets them as they come down from the mountaintop. But the crowd is kind of gathered around the disciples and the scribes, and they're you know, being entertained by the debate that's going on between them. But as soon as Jesus appears, he's much more interesting than the scribes and the disciples arguing. So the crowd immediately forgets about them, and they're starstruck, and they run over to greet Jesus, and, and they're going to see what's going to happen next. You know, now we get to the, the real main event, and everything else is just a warm-up. Let's see what happens now that Jesus is back. That's kind of the idea you get there in verse 15. So here in this introductory section, in verses 14 through 16, you've got the scribes versus the disciples, and this is what Jesus finds as he returns. And you can then sense the exasperation of Jesus that he is tired of just this type of thing. The crowds and their love for controversy and wanting to be entertained. The disciples for their weakness of faith and their inability to do what they should be able to do. The scribes for always finding any occasion they can for opposing Jesus and his followers. Just the whole thing is just disappointing. The whole thing is just sinful. The whole thing is just not faithful to God, not full of faith. What Jesus finds when he comes to the world of men is a world without trust in God. And that is exasperating for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19 again. It says there in verse 19, after the man mentions and explains the situation to Jesus in the previous verses, Jesus answered them. So he's not just speaking to the Father. He's not just saying, well, you don't have faith. He's saying none of these people have faith. And he's answering the disciples, the scribes, the crowds. Everybody is acting in a faithless way. And that's why he said, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And I like what one commentator said so much. I'll read his quote for you. He said, This expresses the loneliness and the anguish of the one authentic believer in a world which expresses only unbelief. Here Jesus is the one true believer, the one who really trusts God the way that God should be trusted. There's no one more trustworthy than God. His character, his power, his wisdom, there's absolutely nothing about God that should make us distrust him. He's never told a lie. He's never failed to do what he intended to do. He is perfect in every way. He's the most trustworthy that a being could be, and yet he's the one that we trust the least. It is amazing how sin has 
corrupted us so that we are so lacking in faith. And this is what Jesus finds most troubling. Now, as the situation is explained to Jesus, he's ready to show compassion. He's ready to help. And so that's why he says, bring him to me. Notice that even though Jesus is extremely disappointed in the faithlessness of the world of man, he still has compassion. He still has the desire to help, even when he finds that we are without faith. And so Jesus has the crowd bring the boy forward to where Jesus is, obviously intending to heal in this situation. And to make it a more dramatic confrontation as we often have when Jesus and a spirit, an unclean spirit, come face to face in the Gospels, the boy has an episode. The spirit seizes him, convulses him, he falls on the ground, and he rolls about. Now, these are symptoms that are consistent with what we know of as a grand mal seizure. And that's what makes this passage so controversial in our day where you've got the worldview of Christians that sees that God has created the world and that it's not a mechanistic universe but that there are spirits in the world and that God is the ultimate spirit who is in control and having that spiritual view of the world we live in versus the philosophical naturalism that says, no, only physical things are real. Every problem we have is purely a physical problem. And so when you've got a situation like this where Jesus is casting out and healing, it gives us a lot of opportunity to misunderstand exactly what's going on here or to hopefully get some good understanding into what's going on here. And so the question that every teacher of this passage has in these verses in Mark chapter 9, verses 17 and following is, is this epilepsy? It doesn't call it epilepsy here in Mark chapter 9. However, in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 17, the word that they had for epilepsy is used. And that's how it's translated in Matthew chapter 17, that the boy was epileptic. Now, what is epilepsy? And that is something that's often misunderstood. And so I wanted to get some clear definitions from our current medical understanding of this condition and really, epilepsy isn't one thing. It's, it's a number of things that we include under a larger umbrella. Epilepsy is a term we use to describe a variety of symptoms that are neurological disorders. So it says here, epilepsy is a neurological condition which affects the nervous system. Epilepsy is also known as a seizure disorder. And so if you have one seizure, well, that's just you had a seizure. And there's many things that can cause a seizure. But if you have repeated seizures over a period of time, then they will identify that as epilepsy. And they don't know exactly what causes it in every situation. It has a variety of causes. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not an expert on epilepsy, but I, I try to read good experts on that subject when I'm preparing for a message like this, right? And so... It's usually diagnosed after a person has had at least two seizures that were not caused by some known medical condition like alcohol withdrawal or extremely low blood sugar. Another definition for epilepsy that I brought with me today from another trusted source is that it's a chronic medical condition marked by recurrent epileptic seizures. 
An epileptic seizure is an event of altered brain function caused by abnormal or excessive electrical discharges from the brain cells. Now, what causes the brain cells to have these abnormal or excessive electrical discharges? Sometimes we can identify a cause, sometimes we can't identify the cause. In fact, about 65% of people who are diagnosed with epilepsy have no obvious cause for these unusual electrical impulses from the brain. Now, thankfully, we live in a time where we have some great medications, and I'm not against medications. God has given us doctors, God has given us psychiatrists, God has given us medicine, and we should use what God has given to us to alleviate suffering. And so about 30% of people with epilepsy are not able to effectively control their seizures with these medications. They're anticonvulsant medications. It works in about 70% of the cases, according to the data I found, but about 30% of folks suffering from this are not able to control their seizures with medications, and there's their surgical options, and, and all kinds of things that, that can be looked into in a case like this. And so we see that epilepsy, it's a seizure that is caused by an unusual functioning in the brain, and so it definitely has that physical component, and it can be treated with physical means. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's all true and it's all good. We live in a physical world. But the world that we live in is not just a physical world, but it's also a spiritual world. And this is where Christians and philosophical naturalists will depart from one another and where you'll have some interesting explanations for a passage like this from what I would call theological liberals. A theological liberal is somebody who tries to fit in both camps. He's got one foot in the Christian camp and wants to be a Christian and believe the Bible, and his other foot is in the secular atheistic camp, and he, he wants to fit in and, and get along well with the secularists. And so he tries to find like a middle position between believing the Bible and, and fitting in with the atheistic culture. And so most liberal theologians, Christian preachers, look at a passage like this, and they'll say, well, this is just a case of epilepsy. There's no demonic activity actually involved. It's just reflecting the misunderstanding of the first century culture who saw this and thought that it was you know, some spirit that was causing it because it looks like something that would be caused by a spirit. You, you, know, you lose control of yourself and, and that type of thing. And this is just the language of the times and Jesus accommodated himself to the beliefs around him and he did the healing, but there was no actual demon involved in this situation. Well, that's not what the text says. And as a believer in the Word of God, I preach what the text says is true. If we don't have a Word of God that we can trust in the details, like in situations like this, well, then we are left to decide what we think is true in God's Word and what is not true in God's Word. And, and we become the final arbiters of truth. And that leads to a lot of bad conclusions. If we set ourselves up as the final judge of what is true and what is not true, well, then you're going to end up wherever the winds of public opinion and your own thinking take you. And there's, there's no objective truth. There's no ground to stand on. So taking a view of Scripture that the words are inerrant and that when the Scripture says that the Spirit saw Jesus in verse 20 and immediately convulsed the boy, that that's what happened. There is a Spirit. He did cause the convulsion. He did cause the seizure. And that Jesus did speak to the Spirit, and cast out the Spirit. And so let's try to avoid some of the pitfalls that might happen 
if a Christian is overreacting to the secularism of our age, to the philosophical naturalism, and starts to view every seizure as being caused by a demon. Just because this seizure was caused by a demon doesn't mean that every person who suffers from epilepsy has a spirit that is involved with that or that an exorcism is called for in their case. Okay? As I started off with discussing epilepsy from the beginning, it is a physical condition that has many different causes. Now, in this case, we see that the cause is a spirit. And so, just because the spirit is the cause in this case doesn't mean he's the cause in every case. This is a common neurological disorder and it has many causes. And so what we want to do is we want to avoid both extremes of saying, well, everything is caused by demons and saying nothing is caused by demons. You don't want to get into either one of those positions. But instead, we want to be biblical in our thinking and recognize that the world we live in is a physical world with physical causes and a spiritual world with spiritual causes, and that things are complicated. And we can't always understand all that is going on in the world. Speaking about the complicated nature of the world, let's just talk about the complicated nature of the human brain itself. I'd like to remind you that researchers at Cambridge spent more than three years analyzing and mapping out the connections that make up the neurological system of the simple worm. The worm has 23 neurons. Do you know how many neurons are in your brain? It's a little bit more than 23. Over 10 billion. You cannot conceive of 10 billion. 10 billion is a number that is so large, you have nothing to compare it to. There's no reference point. You go back into the ancient world and like the biggest numbers they used back then was like 10,000. That was the biggest thing they could think of because that was the, the most they'd ever seen. There's like 10,000 people. And so that's as high as they ever talked about numbers. And we throw billions around like it's nothing. Oh, you know, billions of years ago. Do you have any idea how much a billion is? You know, when they're doing their uh, spending bill and they're talking about billions and billions, do you have any idea how much a billion dollars is? No, you don't. Because this is an inconceivably large number. You have 10 billion neurons. And let me tell you this about your neurons in your brain. Each one can fire up to 1,000 times a second. 10 billion neurons, each one firing up to 1,000 times a second. And each of those neurons is complexly mapped within your mind with up to 1,000 connections each. Do you think you could map out 10 billion neurons with a thousand connections each firing at a thousand times a second and understand the complexity of what's going on in your brain. The human mind is truly the final frontier in science and it's one that will probably nowhere, no time in the near future are we going to understand this. And so if just the physical side of our nature is so complex that it goes beyond what we could study or map out, then combine that with the spiritual side of our nature, the things that are not reduced to neurons, like the nature of love, the nature of morality, the nature of logic, the nature of, of relationships and, and genuine consciousness, which is forever going to be a mystery to those who only view the world through philosophical naturalism. You can't put love and logic and, and consciousness into a test tube. 
These are things that are immaterial. These are things that are spiritual in their nature. And so you take our spiritual nature and our physical brain, and there they're so intertwined. They're so interconnected. You can't even understand one part of it, much less those two parts functioning together. And so in this case, I want you to understand that what we have going on, as the Bible reveals it, is a physical problem that is being triggered by a spiritual power. And that being a fallen power. Now, I want you to understand there are angels, there are demons. And your understanding of angels and demons is about as good as your understanding of the map of the neurons in your brain. This is a spiritual world, it's a hidden world. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about it. But we do get some fascinating insights into this world, particularly in the Gospels when the God-man confronts these fallen spirits, these unclean spirits. Now, the world that we live in, it has angels and demons, and I want you to recognize this, that what we call natural law, the laws that govern the physics of the universe, that there are personal powers behind the natural laws. The world has raised you to think that the universe we live in is just a mechanistic universe and that there's just impersonal forces that are in control of the way the physics of the universe work. That's not true. We live in a world that has been created by a personal God. We ourselves are personal creatures and that God has put personal creatures in charge of the laws of nature. And that the fallen, unclean spirits, these are the ones who are in charge of what is corrupt, what is chaotic, what is disorganized and not functioning properly in the universe. And that the holy angels, they are the ones who are largely in control of what we would think of as the natural processes that bring order and beauty and goodness and health and all of those things. And so the health that you have or the illness that you're struggling with. It's not purely from a mechanistic universe with natural laws, but that there are spirits involved with your health and there are spirits involved with your sickness. Now that's revolutionary. That sounds weird to be preaching on a Sunday morning, but that's the worldview that the scripture presents. And we need to decondition ourselves from the naturalistic thinking that we have and to recognize that we do live in a spiritual universe. I'm not denying the physicality of the universe. We live in a physical universe. But the spiritual is what is higher and what is prior and what is in control. And so to have a physical malady, a malfunctioning of the neurons in the brain that causes seizures, well, there would be, in this case, an evil spirit that brings that about. Now, I don't want to single out epilepsy as as the only area where we see this happening in Scripture. Think about Job. You go back to the book of Job and, and who caused Job to become sick? It was Satan. Satan went to God and said, well, Job only loves you because he's, he's so blessed and he's got health and wealth and, and all of this. And he said, you take all that away and you'll see, he'll curse you to your face. And so Satan comes and he brings the whirlwind and destroys Job's family and his property and he brings raiders. And you'd say, well, no, all this is just physical things. You know, it's the, the raiders, they were just doing what raiders do and, and the whirlwind just does what the whirlwind does. No. There was a satanic power behind those disasters and is the same with his health. He lost his health and it was Satan that caused that. Now, 
You wouldn't say that you, know, you had to exercise a, a demon out of Job in order for him to get his health back, but I want you to see the, the way that a physical malady can be caused by a spiritual entity. Same thing with the Apostle Paul. As the Apostle Paul was relating his story to the Corinthians, he said that in order to keep myself humble, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, a minister from Satan to buffet my body. And so here, this physical malady, this thorn in the flesh that buffets his body, is done by an instrument of Satan. So you have the spiritual cause and the physical cause in situations like that as well. Now, you're not always going to know, is my illness caused by a spirit or not caused by a spirit? And, And we don't have to spend time thinking about all that, but we have to believe what the Scripture says. And the Scripture says that this boy was being tormented by this demon. This is not just an ordinary seizure that happens at any particular time. This is something that is done with malice. He is trying to destroy the child by throwing him into the fire or throwing him into the water, triggering seizures when he's in a situation where he could be in danger. And he's also triggering the seizure when he sees Jesus. And so there's a mind, there's a purpose behind what is going on in this child's life. And you want to understand that That is part of the healing. In Matthew's account, Matthew uses the word healing to describe what Jesus does for the boy. He doesn't deny that there's a demon involved and that Jesus rebukes the demon. But what you have here is a complicated mixture of the two. It's a healing and it's a casting out of the demon. The scripture normally keeps those as separate categories. When you're talking about the miracle working of Jesus, it says he healed and he cast out demons because they're separate things. But in this case, there's a casting out of a demon and a healing that's going on at the same time because of this complex interrelationship between this particular boy's seizures and the activity of Satan. Now, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke also, Luke chapter 13. I haven't fully understood all of this, and so it's hard for me to teach on it, but I'm I'm doing my best. And I think coming here to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, will also help shed some light on what we're talking about here. All right? And Luke 13, verse 10, this section, this paragraph in Luke's gospel, is given the title in the English Standard Version, A Woman with a Disabling Spirit. So here, we've got a physical malady, a disability, but it's caused by a spirit. So he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, Luke 13, 10. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So it mentions a disabling spirit. This is a healing and dealing with a spirit. And this is not the most ordinary, but we do have examples of this. So this is another example of an 
exorcism. I hate to use that word because it carries so much baggage in our mindset and a healing that is going on at the same time. All right? In a similar way, Jesus healed positively through angels. When the man came and asked for Jesus to heal from a distance and said, you don't have to come to my house, I'm a Gentile, I'm not worthy to have you in my house, just say the word and my servant will be healed. You've got servants under you, you can send a servant and he can go and heal. And so Jesus marveled at his faith, that this man understood that Jesus could send an angel to go and do a healing and Jesus didn't have to be there. So there could be healing done through angels, just like there could be a healing done by getting rid of the demon. So I don't expect you to understand all of this. I don't understand all of this. I just want us to be moving towards a biblical understanding of the world we live in and to understand that the world we live in, it's physical, it's mental, and it's spiritual, and that there's a variety of activities that fallen spirits, fallen angels, engage themselves in. So I don't want you to think of someone who has epilepsy like you'd put them in the category of someone who's demon-possessed, right? That's what some Christians might mistakenly do in a situation like this, and, and they might go around trying to cast demons out of anyone who is having seizures. No, no, no. Demon possession like we have in the case of the Gerasene demoniac, the man with the legion, totally different situation than what we're dealing with here with this healing of this boy or the healing of the woman with the back problem. So just recognize it's not all the same. There's different kinds of spirits. There's different ways that they interact with us. And it's something that is beyond us, but it's not beyond God. He knows, he sees, he understands, and that's why we put our trust in him and not in ourselves. As I said before, I want to read this. I want to make this clear. Psychiatry and medicine are not bad. It's not like we Christians have to react against the world and say, no, we're not going to look at the physical side of things at all. Everything has a spiritual cause. Everything has a spiritual cure. No, there is a physical world that we live in and we're dealing with. And so the only time that psychiatry and medicine go astray is when they contradict Scripture and they go against what good science would dictate. And so God gives us doctors, he gives us psychiatrists, he gives us antipsychotic medicine, and, and that is great for the treatment of infirmities. That's important to, to be clear on that. Epilepsy, just like any other malady that we might have, is not the result of some personal sin, but it's rather the result of us being descended from Adam and Eve, living in a fallen world, and awaiting the fullness of blessing and freedom that is coming now, what's remarkable about the healings of Jesus is that they're always complete and total. Here, he speaks to the Spirit. He says, back in Mark chapter 9, he says, I command you, down in verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you. This isn't the disciples that he's dealing with now, that the Spirit is now confronting the Son of God in his perfection, in his power, in his glory, and he has complete control over the situation. And the Spirit, he cries out and convulses the boy, he does as much damage as he can on the way out so that most of the crowd thought that the boy had died. But the boy had not died. He looked like he was dead, but... The language that is used here of Jesus taking him by the hand and lifting him up and him rising, that is very reminiscent 
of an occasion where Jesus did raise the little girl who had just died. And so while I don't, I think the language of scripture here indicates that this boy didn't actually die, but it's still using language that is reminiscent of a resurrection because it's kind of like a resurrection. And maybe some people in the crowd thought that it was. They really thought that he died and they really thought that Jesus raised him. The point is, is that Jesus has complete and total power. That he can raise the dead as he has done and that every act of God is a, an act of overcoming sin and death. And here's another awesome example. Now, the story doesn't end there. And that's why I think the main point of this story is not the miracle itself, but the main point of this story is to show the immaturity, the weakness of the disciples at this point in their walk with Christ. And that's why the story then ends with a focus on their discussion afterwards in verses 28 and 29. All right, so we come to Mark chapter 9, the last two verses here this morning. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Fascinating that he talks about this kind and how there's different kinds of unclean spirits. Once again, we don't know what kinds there are. And don't listen to anybody who thinks they can tell you, well, there's this kind and this kind, and I've got a chart of 27 different kinds, and how you deal with each one of them. No, no, no. Nobody knows that stuff. Don't listen to anybody on that. You don't need to know it. If you needed to know it, it would be in here. Okay? What you need to know is what's in here. And one thing that we learn is that there are different kinds. And God knows the kinds. He knows how to deal with them. He knows what can be done and what can't. But the point here is not that. The point is that the disciples had failed and they wanted to know why we had failed. Because it was all the way back in chapter 5, I think it was, maybe chapter 6, that Jesus had given them the authority to cast out demons and that they'd gone performing miraculous healings and casting out demons and they were rejoicing when they came back because how the demons had been subjected to them. And, and now they got into this situation and they thought, oh yeah, Jesus isn't here, but we can do this. We can handle your problem. Don't worry about it, man. Don't worry about it, boy. We're here for you. And, and then they tried to cast out the demon and the demon was like, nope, I'm not afraid of you. And the disciples were going, what's going on here? I thought this would be easy. And they were embarrassed and the scribes were recognizing it and the scribes were arguing with them about it. And so they wanted to know, what's going on here? How come we couldn't do this? And the answer of Jesus is very interesting. Not just about that there are being different kinds, but his focus on prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What had Jesus just been doing for the last day or two? He'd gone up on the mountain. And what was he doing on the mountain? He was praying. What were the disciples doing for the last day or two? Well, we know one thing they weren't doing. They weren't praying. This is a lesson for us, that when it comes to doing the work that God has given us to do, God hasn't given us the power to cast out demons. We're not performing miraculous healings. I'm not opening the eyes of the blind or opening the ears of the deaf. None of that's going on in Christian ministries today, and those who pretend to do it are charlatans. But... God has given us a spiritual power. He has given us a spiritual authority. He has given us spiritual abilities. But it's our temptation, just like the disciples, to start to think that we can do it without prayer. You know, I've preached a hundred, I've preached a thousand sermons. I can get up and preach a sermon in my sleep. No problem. Uh, start thinking that way and you're going to fail. 
Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The scripture says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't abide in Christ, you have no spiritual power. And the spiritual power that you did have, it's going to fail you. It's going to run out. You can't rely on yesterday's grace for today's problems, but you need to be charged up each day. You need to get power from God each day. And the only way to do that is by prayer. What is prayer? Back when I was a kid, I collected football cards and baseball cards, and they used to have these football cards where they would have the the in-action card, where they would show the guy catching the pass or jumping up and catch the the ball as it was going over the home run wall. It was the in-action card, because normally the guy was just standing there for his picture with his bat. But then they'd have the in-action. Well, prayer is faith in action. You want to know what prayer looks like? Oh, excuse me. You want to know what faith looks like? Faith is invisible. You can't see it. But if you want to know what faith looks like in action... It's prayer. If you are praying, then that is a sign that you have faith. If you are not praying, that's a sign that you don't have faith. And the disciples in this case were not praying because they had come to trust in their past successes rather than trusting in the present power of God, the present grace of God. That's why they failed. I want you to turn back to Matthew's gospel and see the way that he describes their failure in Matthew chapter 17. As I said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this incident. Look at the way the answer of Jesus is expanded upon in Matthew chapter 17. A briefer account, just a a few verses here from verse 14 down to verse 21. But in verse 19, you have the conclusion, just like in ours. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. It's your little faith. That's the problem. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Sometimes we ask the question and we wonder, how much faith does it require to do great things for God? And really the answer is not much. It doesn't require much faith. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would have enough power to do what people think is impossible. And this is important because why did Jesus say that? Why did he put it that way? Sometimes we think that there's like this huge giant hill that we have to climb and somehow after years of becoming super spiritual, then we'll be able to do things for God. And that's not, that's not how it works. God says, you don't need to reach some massive level of spirituality before you can do God's work. All you need is a little tiny bit of faith. And all you need to do is exercise that little tiny bit of faith. You can do great things for God today. You don't have to wait and grow and grow and grow. Just put your faith in God instead of putting it in yourself. Put your faith in God's word. Spend time with God. Abide in Christ. You don't have to be a spiritual giant. You can just be you, the spiritual midget. But when God is with you and you're not focused on me as the spiritual giant, but you're focused on Christ as the spiritual giant, and I can do it if he's with me, that's the little bit of faith that will cause you to move mountains, metaphorically speaking. So, a few applications here that I want to get at as we wrap this up. Let's talk about our specs putting on our spectacles, right? Do we have a sin to confess? Do we have a promise to be believed? Do we have an example to follow? A command to be obeyed? And what knowledge about God can we attain? Well, 
I'd say knowledge about God is the first thing I'd like to address, and that is don't judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. If Jesus' followers have failed you, some preacher has failed you, some Christian friend has failed you, don't judge Jesus by their failure. They took their eyes off Jesus, they stopped following Jesus, they started acting in their own strength, in their own power, in the flesh. They failed. That doesn't mean that God has failed. Just because Christians fail doesn't mean that God is not trustworthy. Don't lose your faith in God because people are foolish. It's not Christians that we're putting our trust in, it's God that we're putting our trust in. Don't judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. Don't let your faith in Christ be shaken by the failures of his followers. Be like this man. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a great example to follow. I do believe, help my unbelief. We all struggle with doubt. We all have, as Christians, as God's children, we all have unbelief that is remaining with us. And we can go to God and ask him, please, God, deal with my unbelief. I know that I don't trust you the way that I should. I know that unbelief clouds my vision and makes me think in things that are just foolish. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's a great prayer, a great example to follow. Number two, well, I guess number three, since I just gave help my unbelief as number two, the example. The third application point I'd like to make is learn to see that the real problem in the world is lack of faith in God. The real problem in the world is lack of faith in God. If we would just believe God, believe his word, believe his son, believe his gospel, you would see a world transformed. You would see people set free from the power of sin. You would see people set free from the power of Satan. You would have a transformation of families, a transformation of nations, a transformation among the relationship between nations in the world. We could have peace we could have joy, we could have righteousness, we could have freedom, we could have everlasting life, we could have health, we could have every blessing God could give if the world would just believe. It's the one thing, it's the secret to every blessing that God has. Do you trust his word? Do you believe his word? Do you act upon it? Do you exercise that faith? Now, we know that the world is not going to believe and be saved, that it's going to continue on in this unbelief. But that doesn't mean you have to. You can go against the grain. You can go against the flow. And you can exercise faith in God. And you can be saved. The real problem in the world is lack of faith. And it's a problem that's in each one of us. Another point that I'd love to make and spend more time on, but I'm just going to do very briefly here, is sometimes things get worse before they get better. When you put your faith in God, sometimes things get worse before they get better. Here, this man, he's bringing his child to Jesus to be healed, and Jesus isn't there. Those disciples are there. All right, disciples, please cast the spirit out, heal my son. They can't do it. They fail. The man's faith is weakening. Jesus isn't here. His disciples have failed. And then Jesus comes back, and maybe his hopes are reignited again. But as soon as the boy sees Jesus, his son has this terrible convulsion, and it's hard. Things seem to be getting worse before they're getting better. And then when Jesus performs the exorcism, you know, again, hate to use that word because of all the connotations that comes with it, but whatever, Jesus tells the spirit to leave this boy alone. He's convulsed so severely that he looks like he's dead. 
And I wonder what the father thought. Did the father think he had died? You know, I, I tried to believe and, and this is what happened. My son died. And so things can look like they're getting worse before they get better. And, and for a great example of this, go back to the story of the Exodus where God sent Moses to free the people and did it get better right away for the people when Moses came and told Pharaoh, God says, let my people go? No, it got worse for the people. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 5 and 6. And the people, they stopped trusting in God. They stopped trusting in Moses. They thought, oh, this is terrible. Uh, sometimes God will test your faith and things will get worse before they get better. But keep on believing. That's going to see whether or not you have genuine faith. 